Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. It is uh, the autumn of 2020 and what a strange autumn it promises to be. Uh, we hope that you're all well uh, and have been over the summer. Uh, my name's Tom Bennett. I'm joined uh, today uh, by Colette Allen, uh, who listeners will recognize as the cheery host of our uh, newscast editions and who's back with us uh, this year, uh, and also by the newly minted professor, Paul Rag. Congratulations to Paul, uh, and hello as well. Uh, congratulations on your promotion over the summer, which is always good news uh, when academics get the recognition they so richly deserve. So um, we are back around for the Media Law Podcast, uh, and uh, in this first episode of the new academic year, we're just going to flag up a few uh, issues that have arisen over the summer months, um, some of which we may well come back to in longer, more detailed podcasts uh, this academic year. And uh, we start uh, with some news from Australia. Uh, Colette, you've been looking at this one. Yes, so um, there's currently a kind of three-way standoff happening between the Australian government's news industry and Facebook and Google um, as the government attempts to set new regulations that would force Facebook and Google to pay for the news content that they um, use in the country. And both companies have come out very critical of these new regulations um, and, you know, kind of threatening Australian users that their services will be reduced if these regulations go through. Um, they're claiming that newspapers gain more from their platform than they do from their content. Um, Google's claiming that it made uh, Austra um, in Australian dollars 10 million of revenue, not profits, in 2019. Um, and Rupert Murdoch, among others, have called these figures absolutely absurd and inaccurate. Um, I think it's interesting for the potential precedent that it may set as other countries around the world are thinking about regulating Google and Facebook use of news content in their jurisdictions. Um, and there's also various intellectual property ramifications that arise when news content is shared online and through social media. Um, I don't know nearly enough about it to speak with any authority, but I think it's fair to say that the news media has always occupied kind of interesting special space on the outskirts of copyright law um, and social media and the internet are presenting new challenges. So it's one to look out for and potentially discuss in more detail with an IP expert in another podcast another time later on in turn. It strikes me that one of the uh, issues that this particular case brings to the foreground is the power that is uh, seems to be being wielded by Facebook simply through the threat of withdrawing its services. We've also seen recently a threat, uh, again by Facebook, to withdraw fa Facebook services and also Instagram, they own, um, services in Europe if um, uh, uh, an Irish... Uh, data sharing regulation that is uh, designed to 
limit or at least to regulate data sharing between uh, Europe and the United States comes into effect. Um, and I'm not sure, because um, I've not followed the story closely, exactly what the developments are on that. But the, the point is that Facebook is issuing a threat to withdraw its services in, I think, much the same way as one would once have seen the threat of uh, of, of big capital to withdraw finance from a jurisdiction um, in order to lobby for political change. And it's quite remarkable that the, the, uh, the leverage that a social media company now has. When you think about Facebook, um, it's not, it, it, it really is a product of oh, just over a decade. And in that time, it seems to have grown to such a position of prominence in its particular marketplace that it seeks to exercise influence over governmental activity across the globe simply with the threat of withdrawing its services and the unpopularity that that would then uh, cause uh, for the governments in question. Um, I think that's quite remarkable. Yeah, I agree. And I think that power balance, I mean, you see it with the DP3T, um, the new NHS app that was just launched today which is working now on a decentralized server because Facebook and Google, Facebook and Apple even, um, simply said, no, we're not going to allow extended services on our products if you don't use this specific kind of app. And they fully held the British government to account, to, um, hostage. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're, you're right. There is a very, there's been a major power shift in the past 10 years. And the way that they can exercise huge influence over regulations, um, whether they're, you know, to do with news content or otherwise, or this this data sharing that you're speaking about with Ireland. I don't know anything about that particular example, but I think it is definitely um, something that's notable and potentially worrying for governments that they are being held hostage in many circumstances. Yeah, we used to call it capital flight when it was to do with money. What's this now? Social capital flight? Um, Paul, is this, I don't know, does this concern you at all? It uh, maybe not concerns me, but it certainly interests me, this idea of um, uh, Facebook, uh, Google, etc., having such power, particularly in circumstances where um, their revenue streams uh, still remain quite murky it's not entirely clear it's not entirely transparent what it is they actually do let alone how they they generate the money that they do and clearly the kind of revelations brought about by things like Cambridge Analytica um although they might have momentarily slowed down uh, Facebook they don't seem to have had any uh, serious impact on their on their business model from at least from the outside world and so it's it's interesting to now live in a world in which uh, it's not money itself, but data that seems to be so valuable and seems to be the thing on which we we are trading these days. Hmm. Well, something, yes, I think we will try to return to, if we can, 
in a future podcast. Um, but let's move along because uh, the news never stops. And one other thing that seems never to stop is the uh, never-ending saga of Julian Assange and his uh, mooted extradition to the United States. Now, Assange is wanted in the United States um, to face charges of espionage relating to uh, the WikiLeaks uh, documents, uh, which were initially leaked by the whistleblower Chelsea Manning um, via uh, WikiLeaks and thus through uh, the portal uh, run by Julian Assange. Assange, as uh, uh, listeners will be aware, has uh, been in the United Kingdom, although for a while holed up in uh, the Ecuadorian embassy um, uh, for uh, a number of years now. He uh, is, has been in custody for some time and is now uh, in court uh, facing extradition at an extradition hearing. The hearing is ongoing and is taking a long time. Uh, partly because of the disruption caused to it by uh, the pandemic. And a couple of issues that I don't think have gotten a huge amount of coverage. Certainly one of them should have had more coverage, in my view, um, which is uh, the impact on journalistic freedom of charging a journalist who publishes leaked documents, documents leaked by someone else, who publishes them with a belief in their being in the public interest, charging that person with espionage, um, which seems to me to be a profoundly concerning thing for uh, freedom of speech. Whatever one thinks of Julian Assange, and I say nothing about the man's character here, simply the issue of charging a journalist with espionage for the fact of publishing documents that were leaked by somebody else. Paul, do you have any thoughts on this? I do. Um, yeah, like like you, I'm not. There, there are two separate issues here, as you as you've alluded to. There's the the Assange himself and the and what's happened. I mean, on the one hand, I, I sort of understand the rationale for uh, charging them with with espionage. Um, the UK has a long and rich tradition of applying uh, the Official Secrets Act in a in a very heavy-handed way, um, going right back to um, the early 1900s. So, in that sense, I'm not surprised that he's been charged with. Um, uh, sorry, I'm not su surprised by the charge of espionage. Um, and in some ways, I, I sort of agree with it in the sense that it, it does trouble me that um, highly sensitive uh, material, uh, which is which affects ongoing operations, could be uh, disclosed in that way. But at the same time, uh, it's always been the case with uh, official secrets type behavior that there is this kind of accountability uh, vacuum that even when courts get access to uh, 
highly classified uh, information, they themselves can't then share it through the usual means of the published judgment. And so it does leave us in this precarious position where we're having to rely on official statements or the government itself uh, that certain things can't be revealed and we can't have a discussion about them. Um, there you go. Pick, pick what you like out of that. Well, the precedent that this would set, even if this is you know, exceptional circumstances and these were very serious um, matters of national security and if uh, they posed, if published genuinely, a significant threat to ongoing operations, that may well be the case. If so, I'm sure it will come out in due course or perhaps it never will. Um, but the precedent it potentially sets for journalists is that they will then not know when they make the decision whether to publish information, whether they might face spending the next couple of hundred years in prison. Bear in mind that the charges against Assange uh, would add up to 175 years worth of imprisonment if convicted on all counts in the US. Um, so the potential for a, a, a chilling effect here um, on journalists in the United Kingdom because they potentially face charges in the US is, uh, I think, really quite um, considerable. We've seen not dissimilar moves recently um, over uh, Hong Kong where we've seen the Chinese uh, government issue uh, arrest warrants for uh, people resident overseas in respect of their uh, alleged uh, activities uh, in Hong Kong. And, you know, are we entering a new age of uh, governments throwing their weight around outside of their jurisdictions? Um I think that's a, a, a matter that is um, of, of broad concern for freedom of expression. The other point to mention with Assange is, is the other issues that have arisen um, uh, to do with the conduct of the hearing itself, where uh, uh, there have been claims from Amnesty International that they've not had adequate access to be able to monitor the proceedings. Now, given the pandemic, there are obviously restrictions on the who can actually be physically present in court, but there are um, electronic uh, measures in place to enable observation from outside. Some of those, uh, it's been widely reported, have uh, struggled, shall we say, in uh, at times in, in, in recent uh, weeks, um, as the technology has, has, has failed or, or failed to work properly. Um, Amnesty also alleges that it has been deliberately excluded um, from the proceedings. They've not elaborated on the reasons for that exclusion on their own website. And all I am doing here is reporting what I've seen uh, on uh, the uh, website. But it raises, I think, more broadly issues of access to the courts um, during the pandemic. I mean, it's important, obviously, that social distancing is uh, enabled physically in courts. But uh, how concerning is it um, when 
the technology that's supposed to enable outside observation lets us down. Um, thoughts, either of you? Go on, Colette. Um, well, I, I have a point more to do with the um, returning to the extraterritorial nature of this, but I'll, I'll put that to you in a second. Um, the open access question, um, I think it's particularly interesting with Assange because it's become so political. Um, and in many ways, that makes um, accessibility to the courts more important. Something that's come out that I found particularly interesting in the reports of the cases is um, Trump offering Assange a deal to avoid extradition if he revealed the source of the 2016 Democratic Party hack, um, which is just a great example of you know how political this case has become, and it, and you know proves the point that access to this is more important than others. Other cases that have um, and held behind closed doors because of coronavirus. And so, I mean, we're in the situation we're in. I guess all you can do is hope that enough people are being able to report on it, that stories are coming out. Um, but no doubt, if this doesn't go the way that they want an appeal made on grounds that um, it was unfairly handled or something, or there wasn't enough access to the courts, open justice, all those kinds of things, might be possible. I don't know. Hmm. I wanted to return to the point that you made, Tom, about uh, journalists and the risk of, of imprisonment, because it sort of reminded me of, um, in fact, it didn't remind me, it, it challenged me, because I'd always thought that newspapers uh, had sort of access to uh, government officials in circumstances where they thought they might be about to breach the um, official Secrets Act, or that their publication would breach the Official Secrets Act. Um, and I'm now wondering if that's right. Is this just a cosy view that, that, that I have? But I was thinking of defence advisory notices. Presumably there's a number of those floating around at the moment, discussing what can and can't be said about uh, Assange and, and the case. My point, really, if there is a point to pick out of that, is... I'm wondering how easy it, it, it actually is for journalists to, or how precarious the situation is. I mean, if they, if there are things that they feel that ought to be said, uh, of course, that raises problems with official secrets, the official secrets act, because of the, the lack of adequate public interest exceptions within the official secrets act. Um, but the idea of them doing it sort of accidentally or or falling into it, I'm I'm not convinced by. Can I just ask a quick question about the um the extraterritorial nature that you touched on of um, journalists being potentially exposed to other jurisdictions' official secret laws or espionage laws if they publish a story in um, their country and. I just kind of wonder whether, you know, you were speaking about whether this is a good idea, a good direction for the law to be travelling in with this case. But given the fact that WikiLeaks is a global um, platform and that the leaks did happen internationally, if you will, then surely for any Espionage Act or Official Secret Act to have any power in the 21st century internet age, they would have to have some sort of extraterritorial power. 
Well, this comes back to something we've mentioned a number of times on the podcast, which is the difficulty of regulating that which happens in the online world. The online world ought really to be a jurisdiction in itself, Mm. logically speaking, because things happen in that particular land, even though it's virtual, um, that one might think uh, ought to be illegal, but it falls to... Uh, countries, physical states, to deal uh, with this. And then one of the things that's that's happened is states have, have recognised the global nature of the internet and have extended the reach of their own legal systems into the internet. Um, and the question becomes, is this an overreach or is it not? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I certainly hear what you're saying. I think it's part of a broader issue um, to do with regulating that which happens on the internet. Um, But there's still the question of um, whether the types of charges that have been levelled against Assange are appropriate um, in in, in the circumstances. So uh, from one issue regarding the freedom of the press to another uh, which provides a significant contrast, I think. And this is the uh, blockade by protesters from uh, Extinction Rebellion of uh, a number, I think it was three, uh, of uh, printing presses in the United Kingdom uh, earlier this month, uh, where for a day uh, protesters prevented newspapers printed in those printing presses from leaving them, and finding their ways into the hands of consumers. Um, This affected a number of different publications. Um, The major Murdoch News Corp uh, publications, Sun, The Times, um, and so forth. Um, But uh, also uh, The Telegraph, The Daily Mail, so um, there were a number of different major newspapers that were impacted by this. Um, what interested me was the reaction, um, which uh, in political circles was really quite extreme, I thought. Um, the government uh, were very upset. Uh, they attacked, the, well, they, they called this an attack on the freedom of the press, uh, Keir Starmer for the opposition agreed and said that this was, uh, I forget the exact words that he used, but he criticised the actions of Extinction Rebellion on the basis that it harmed uh, the free press. Um, and there was some talk, though it seems to have uh, quietened down, of the government uh, moving to label Extinction Rebellion a serious criminal organisation. Um for their uh, day's worth of uh, direct action protest. Um, bear in mind that the government is uh, th- th- that is talking here about how this single day of direct action protest against three printing presses um, is an attack on the free press. This is the same government that is uh, actively uh, advocating for the extradition of Julian Assange. Um, is this, Paul, is what Extinction Rebellion have done here an attack on the freedom of the press? 
Well, I think it. I think it is. I think, but but then again, I think they would want it to be viewed in that way because I think they're trying to emphasise the contribution that they see uh, the traditional press making towards uh, climate change and the fact that the the mainstream press uh, isn't giving a strong enough impression of support for the existence of climate change and the need for, for radical action. At the same time, I am concerned that this is yet further evidence of uh, an apparent puppet government in action. The, the very idea that uh, this disturbance to uh, printing, which which by any measure has to be thought of as, as I think, mild or, or irritating. Um, I, you know, I can't, I, I certainly don't agree that this is a sort of active terrorism or anything of that, that extent. But what troubles me is the response of the government at a time when all of its thought and energy must be drained and devoted to, on the one hand, uh, the control of the COVID outbreak and on the second hand in preparing for brexit which is going to happen whether we like it or not at the end of this year instead they're devoting bandwidth to what is a minor point now i think we do need to remember that this is the same government that's been accused time and again of having a very cozy relationship with particular newspaper owners particular newspapers and for me this incident reinforces a point that uh, Lord Justice Leveson made in his report that there should be greater transparency emanating from government in exactly what the relationships are that they have with particular newspapers, particular owners and particular journalists. Now, if you recall, Leveson wanted there to be a register of sorts documenting these relationships documenting the circumstances in which uh, members of parliament are in fact meeting with or having dealings with uh, the press. Uh, I understand why the press is important to government for the purposes of re-election but at the same time I do, I do not accept that the press speaks for us in any meaningful sense and it troubles me that they could have this kind of profound influence uh, on uh, the present government. The notion that this is an attack on the freedom of the press implies necessarily the existence of a free press to begin with. And in that context, one big issue that remains unresolved in this country is the lack of plurality of ownership of our major print newspapers in that you have a small group of very wealthy people that own the vast majority of these outlets and whose own political views, it cannot seriously be denied, find their way strongly into the material published by those outlets. Um, now, is this the kind of free press that we have in mind when we say X is an attack on the free press? Or is it in reality a press that is 
largely in hoc to a small number of people with a relatively narrow range of political views and interests, who, as uh, you rightly say, Paul, exert considerable influence. And uh, on this note, uh, one matter of interest is the relatively recent formation of a new charity, uh, the Public Interest News Foundation, uh, which has been set up to endeavour to provide uh, some independent news coverage. It's the first of its kind to be awarded charitable status. And uh, that's something we're going to come back to uh, in just a few weeks' time uh, with a special podcast uh, featuring uh, the organization's founder, Jonathan Haywood. So uh, do listen out for that uh, sometime mid to late October. It's notable how defences of the free press have been used against the right to protest in the past few months. Because the same kind of thing happened when we had all the Black Lives Matter protests and the debates around um, changing education syllabuses and um, statues and all this kind of stuff. And it very the, the conversation very quickly moved away from the issues of systemic racism and on to whether Churchill should be um, celebrated in schools and the right of people to be able to talk about him and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's there's the, the way that the government often jumps on to um, defending the free press as a as an as a way to then say to shut down a conversation or a protest um, is is interesting, especially in light of the point you're making that. Is it really a free press if it's really in the hands of a few small people? Because Extinction Rebellion people have just as right, just as much right to publish and have their thoughts and views um, shared as the people in power or the, um, the the papers themselves. And so I just think it's it's a it's an interesting one the way that you know freedom of the press and free speech gets jumped on when it's kind of shared in comparison to the right to protest. I think you're absolutely right, and you make a really important point there, um, which is that rhetorically, whomever claims freedom tends to do quickly quite well in the argument. Mm. Uh, And so uh, politicians are very quick to leap on freedom as an inherently good thing, and they say, ah, well, this is an attack on freedom. Uh, and there's an awful lot of things which, if you listen to our politicians, amount to an attack on freedom uh, on a regular basis. Um, uh, and Extinction Rebellion is not framing its activities in the same way, though it equally could. It could say we are standing up for the freedom of the planet, the freedom of people to live without the threat of climate change. Um, it just hasn't done so, uh, in no small part, I think, because... Uh, Contrary to popular beliefs in government, Extinction Rebellion is not really uh, an organization, let alone a serious criminal one. Uh, It doesn't speak with a single voice. It doesn't issue um, decrees or uh, jump up and try to claim freedom rhetorically um, in in the way that a much more organized uh, government is able to do. Well, I suppose this is a a good point at which to... um... Uh, reiterate again that uh, my book is available at all good bookshops and deals uh, pretty much exclusively uh, with this point of 
uh, freedom of the press and, and how we conceive freedom of the press. Because the point of using it in a government context, in parliament discussions, etc., is precisely for its emotional impact. That phrase means something. Now, what it means and whether the meaning we attach to it is right is something I ex explore in detail in the book. But it's convenient for the uh, government to use that kind of expression because who's going to stand up in opposition when when that point is made? Who's going to stand up and say, no, it is not attack on free, the free press or the, the press doesn't have that kind of freedom? That is Paul Rags, A Free and Regulated Press, published by Hart. Get yourselves a copy of that, listeners. It is well worth a read. Um, finally, the and finally item um, is, of course, how can we let the podcast go by without mentioning the 45th President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, uh, because he's facing uh, a defamation lawsuit in the United States arising out of an allegation that he uh, raped a woman in the 1990s. Um, so this, having been through various bits of investigation over the years, has culminated in a civil case where his alleged victim is suing him for defamation for what he's said about her in the context of her having made the uh, allegation in the first place. So uh, Trump is the defendant in a defamation case. Um and what's remarkable is that the U.S. Department of Justice has jumped in to uh, defend him in this case, officially. Um, and uh, this raises an interesting question of whether it's appropriate for the U.S. Department of Justice to defend uh, a person who was not president um, and indeed occupied no public office at the time that the incidents to which the allegations refer first took place or allegedly took place. Um, is this appropriate or is it not? Obviously, he is now the president. Um, Paul, should the DOJ be involved in this? No, not not at all but this is the this is the difficulty again isn't it of um power and power wielding uh quite why the doj's got involved i don't even think they've made clear have they uh, aren't they acting as if this is just sort of normal for you know this type of thing if it happens to a president um but this is surely this is a claim against donald trump the man and not donald trump the president of the united states uh, it seems that, well, this is according to the BBC, um, that the DOJ's argument is that because Trump was president when he denied the rape allegation, they can legitimately defend him. That seems to be the argument. So that mm. being presumed, that being the the the, the defamation. Um, okay, but was he? Well, th this is interesting for me because surely he wasn't speaking as the president. 
I don't know. Maybe there's something in uh, U.S. constitutional law that says that when you are the president, everything you do is is speaking as the president. Uh, but this just strikes me as an entirely private matter uh, that has nothing to do with the with the mechanics of um, uh, the U.S. justice system. But also, can you imagine taking up being that woman and taking on not only the president of the United States, but his entire arsenal at the same time? It's just incredible. What also troubles me in in this context, uh, in and in fact every context we've thought about today, is the way that the law seems to be either conveniently used or conveniently ignored uh, to suit larger questions of um, policy. That that's certainly one aspect, but also the apparent disinterest by the general public in these kind of issues. I don't know whether this is just um, it just a sort of sense of apathy or whether this apathy is real, but we don't seem as a nation particularly concerned or as concerned as we should be about these attacks on uh, media law or more generally these attacks that implicate uh, politics. And I wonder what's going on. Why, why have we been cowed in this way? Yeah, I don't. I see. I wonder whether it's to do with who's setting the conversation. It tends to be the print media who will raise these issues, and whether the public's just become so disillusioned with news outlets that they hear them complaining about the way that they're being targeted, and they just are sick of it, so they've switched off. But the the, the sort of tie-in for me back to back to media law and, and aspects of media is this. Over the last 10 years, as we've already alluded to, we've seen communication changed fundamentally. We can now communicate meaningfully with each other and effectively without the press and therefore outside of this cosy relationship between press and uh, politicians in a way that ought to allow us to be more organised and to sort of not not need uh, the national press in a way in order to set the agenda for us. And I wonder if this is a generational thing that generation that we're still too caught up in the intuition that the press exists for a purpose, and that actually generations to come will be able to use the tool that's available to all of us that would allow us to circumvent these difficulties and actually be more effective in demanding a, a meaningful response to these outrageous uses of power. Or potentially get even more unorganised and less um, close to the law because it's become more organic and people are just communicating directly with each other rather than through institutions. And so if you've not got an institution like the print media, then an institution like the law also falls behind. Well, both of you, this has been, as ever, illuminating and fun. Uh, I think that's about all we have time for today. But we'll be back before too long, um, as ever, exploring the big issues of media law uh, in depth, probably in a bit more depth than we've uh, done today, as we've covered a range of subjects. Uh, but until next time, it's uh, goodbye from me. Goodbye. 
from Colette and Paul as well. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.